Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Michael F. Schein. He is the author of The Hype Handbook. He is also the founder of Microfame Media. So you can check those guys out at microfamemedia.com. Michael, thanks very much for coming back, first of all. Thank you for having me, Marcus. I had so much fun the first time. I was really excited when we thought about having this second episode because I'd love to learn how you've applied hype. Because when we last spoke, it was just at the launch. So I'd love to hear some lessons from the field of actually applying what you uh, what you wrote about and mm-hmm. seeing how it affected your clients. Yeah, it's it's been quite a two years. The book first came out two years ago. You know, McGraw Hill put it out. We didn't talk two years ago. We probably talked six months after it came out or something like that, but it was still in the very early stages. Um, Yeah, it's it's been a whirlwind. It's really changed everything. So before the Hype Handbook came out, I owned a company that has the same name, a microfame media, but it, it was structured like a traditional marketing agency. I always used the strategies that I call hype, which I describe as as any actions that you take that uh, get a large number of people highly emotional so that they'll do what you want them to do or go a direction you want them to do. And I've always looked at non-conventional marketers. So instead of looking at marketing pros who know the right sales funnels and technology to build, I look at, gosh, rock band managers, hip hop managers, cult leaders, propaganda artists, and think about how to apply their their, um, techniques ethically. And I always used that, but because no one knew what hype was, at least how I defined it, because it usually has a negative connotation, I would package myself as a traditional agency. Hey, we'll help you get leads. We'll help you get your social media together, et cetera. And you know, it was a good career. It was a good life. I, I made a nice living, but there were some inherent problems. There were always a lot of tough conversations because clients who were great at the same time when human nature states that when a client hires a marketing agency, they kind of feel like, as they should, I guess, that it's like a magic wand where you're outsourcing your marketing work, right? But the problem is when you're not selling something like Coca-Cola, when it's tied to uh, ideas or a person, it becomes very challenging because people have to show up and they have to embed it in, in, in their DNA. So there was always a lot of push and pull, tough conversations. When the book came out, it got attention. And I'm, I'm really fortunate about that. And people started to understand this concept of hype versus marketing and how hype could be a good thing, not a bad thing. And so people started to call me and email me, not because they were responding to some campaign we did about getting leads for a marketing agency, because they wanted this hype thing that I had described. They wanted to become a benevolent hype artist. And so I restructured the company to allow for that. So now instead of running these marketing campaigns and having account executives and this, that, and the other, we have a very structured program where you come into the program and there are 12 hype strategies and we go through them together one by one in a very structured way. And we run experiments based on each hype strategy until we come up with a combination of of tactics that gets them the result they want. Then we document that, figure out a way to blow it up big and move on through the process. 
And what's wonderful about that is that, and what, well, what's been fascinating to me, other than the fact that the company has has grown and done really well as a result, is that when you have your clients put a little bit of skin in the game, when you say to them, look, we will come up with the ideas with you, give you the tools, teach you the tools, help you roll out the tools, score the experiment and improve it. But you have to go out and do the experiment, even if it's small, they become good at this stuff. They become hype artists. And then when you document it, they sing the gospel throughout their organization. And before long, you have these companies who are running in this playful whimsical way that's allowing them to get this attention that they've always wanted. And it's been really, really great to see. It's been really ironic because the last uh, chapter in the book is called Fetishize Work, that if you can get people to do work on behalf of a cause, they'll love you forever. So it's kind of a version of that. All of these people are out there generating, you know, do, doing doing the action of building experiments, and they're getting far better results uh, because they're really getting into it and learning it and caring and spreading the gospel. So it's been, a, weirdly enough, besides the worldwide pandemic, it's been a fun two years. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And the, by the time's flown by because I've been stuck in my conservatory or my living room, quietly being a gargoyle, <laughs> 12 to 16 meetings a day. So um, time's flown. I'm really curious, maybe remind people if they're not familiar with with some of these hype strategies and maybe some of the uh, more obscure ones that uh, you don't always get asked about. Yeah, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the story since I've been on the on on the podcast before, so so it's worth you know giving some background. Essentially, what I observed. So I was somebody who was an artsy type. I mean, I played in bands and wrote fiction. And then I, in my mid-20s, decided I had to grow up or mid to late 20s and, and got a very corporate job and dedicated myself to that, but sort of bleached all of the like cool punk rock part out of me. When I finally got too miserable to stand it, I went into business on my own and tried to become, and, and eventually did, a, uh, a copywriter, you know, writing marketing copy for, for people. And mm -hmm. everyone who worked with me tend to like my work but I was really bad at getting the work. You know, I, I, I was not good because I, I, I went from being kind of this whimsical fun guy who could actually sell out a club using kind of humor and trickery and, and benevolent trickery, getting people, you know, putting signs up that got people excited, whatever, to becoming kind of this, just this corporate mindset. I, I, would, I, would, I would do search engine optimization or try to in a mediocre way. I would do sales funnels and, and none of it worked very well until I said to myself at rock bottom, you know, I, all of the people I admire who really have drummed up attention are not professional marketers. They're people like band managers before rock and roll became a business, you know, the sex pistols manager, hip hop managers, but even, you know, tricksters like Andy Warhol, PT Barnum, cult leaders, propaganda artists, some nasty, nasty people who I don't admire, but who I've been fascinated by. And I said, what if I could distill out their understanding of mass psychology and apply it through an ethical filter and do an experiment and see if I could make it work on behalf of something that doesn't deceive and makes people's lives better? 
And I may not have been a good salesperson at the time, but I was a, a really good student. So I figured this out and started testing it and it really worked. I, I drummed up a ton of attention for my copywriting business. And then people wanted the, they were kind of like, how do you get all this business? So it turned into that agency I described. So um, yeah, I mean, basically what the book does is distill that process. I, I looked at all of these different strategies, techniques, these antics of these people. And I said, are there through lines that tie them all together? Are there principles? Or is it just all over the map? And it turns out that if you take the content out of it, there really are 12 principles or 12 strategies that the best attention getters and emotion builders and mass sort of crowd controllers really all do. And, and they can do it on behalf of the civil rights movement, and they can do it on behalf of a cult. But it's not about lying. It's not about deceiving. It's about understanding that human beings do not process information rationally, and that we behave very, very differently in groups as we do as individuals. So I wrote this book. I think besides the fact that it's helpful, I think the reason it got some attention was because it's a, it's a lot more magical, fun sort of topic than like marketing funnels for the 21st century or whatever many of the okay. other books are out there. So, yeah. I mean, and we've obviously talked about some of this stuff before. And, you know, we talked about make love, not war, which is, you know, pick a fight. Um, you talk about becoming a trickster. So challenging people, provoking them into thought becoming the uh, the majest, becoming the wise person, filling a void and filling, uh, finding a void and filling it. But I, I'm curious about things like give the little children, the, the little babies their milk. What does that mean? That seems to be everyone's favorite chapter title. No, interestingly, and it is because it actually comes from religion. There, there are more than, there's more than one religion uh, from Mormonism to the Nation of Islam to the Bible that uses this phrase. And they, they, when, when they talk about proselytizing, you know, going and bringing people into the fold, they, they tell their missionaries, give the little babies their milk before you give them their meat. And, and what that means is that if you walk up to someone out of the blue and you say, after Jesus was crucified and rose, he came to America and met the Native Americans and spread the gospel there, they would say, get out of my face. What are you talking about? Because that's so foreign. I'm not putting it down. I have no belief on whether that, I have my own beliefs, but that's no more bizarre than any other religion. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to say whether that's true or false. That's not my point here. It's just that it's very different or was at the time from anything anyone had ever heard before. And that's true for every religion. So if you just come to someone with that, they're going to say, they're going to dr drive you away. But if you say to someone wearing a nice tie and a clean shaven face and a short haircut, and you say to someone, hey, you know, um, um, you know, you, you, you know, um, gosh, would you like to learn a little bit about how we can make sense of these chaotic times we're in? You know, well, everyone wants that. That's easy, right? And then slowly but surely, you move the bar. So you can introduce people and get people to buy in to extremely um, things that are way out of their circle of understanding if you do it in increments yeah. than if you do it all, all at once. And, and, and there's, there's reasons for this. We're programmed to fear big changes and not to fear incremental changes.
And we're also programmed to fear uncertainty. Sure. Big, big changes herald uncertainty. Um, so if you don't get that buy-in through incremental development of the idea and having them buy, um, but make it more of their own, that familiarity. I mean, repetition seems to be very important here as well. That, that too. But to talk about what you're saying about uncertainty for a moment, because I agree, and I, I think I'd like to add to it. Yeah, that's true. And at the same time, if you think about it completely logically, as if you were an alien looking down from, from, from you know, the sky without any of our biases, there's no difference. But, you know, it, it, whether you introduce something to someone in, in snippets or whether you introduce it all at once, if you get to the same endpoint, there's no less uncertainty about one or the other. It's less perceived uncertainty. That's it's that you can get used to each step and then feel comfortable going to the next one. And that's completely biological. You know, we actually have a threshold in our brain that if change is too broad, we, we uh, secrete cortisol. But if change is really, really small, we don't even notice it. There's a threshold. You can't pick it up. And, and magicians use it all the time. It works on a visual level. They'll distract you and move something really slowly. And then you look and you're like, how did it get there? So it, it's really wired into our system. And I, I think the reason is, um, you know, the, the way I think of it is if you're walking through a forest when you're, you know, our, our primeval ancestors and everything just turns orange and yellow really quickly, well, you should be scared. That's probably a fire. Yeah. But if slowly but surely things turn orange and yellow, well, that's autumn, right? That's fall. Right. So, yeah, we're wired that way for a reason, but but you can use it to introduce complicated ideas. And, and you got to meet people where they are, to your point. That's that's another way of saying that. Okay. And I really did like the whole concept of fetishizing uh, work. So let's talk about that, because um, uh, uh, interestingly enough, although I haven't consciously applied those principles, what I've noticed in the ecosystem that I and 70 of my closest friends are building, we have applied at least six or seven of these principles already without realizing it, which is how we've managed to get people together very quickly. But I'm now really interested in the ones that galvanize people to take action. So can we talk about that for a little? In terms of the hype strategies that drive people to act, which are the ones that you should look at? Well, all of them. I mean, they all work together. I mean, if you can master all of them, then 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 you're in good shape. But I mean, let's talk about fetishized work because that's I'm interested in that for a couple of reasons. One, it's helped me in my own career, so I'm a case study. But this is one that can be used for real evil, but can also be used for real good. So so it's really interesting. It's really a perfect demonstration of how the same sort of strategy is neither moral nor immoral in itself, but it's it can really be abused or or or, or made, used to make people's lives feel better. So cults do this a lot. The Moonies, you know, Reverend Some Young Moon's Unification yeah. Church often had and probably still has their uh, followers work like 60 hour days for free. And you would think, well, of course they are. I mean, they're, they're work getting free work, right? Okay. But when you have someone work on behalf of this higher cause, 
if they then start having doubts about what you're selling them or what you're telling them, it provides a cognitive dissonance to back off. So, so if you've been working like a dog and then you think, I don't know that, you know, now they're telling me that Reverend Moon is the direct descendant of the sun God or whatever they believe. I don't really know. Yeah, but I've just been working 60 hours a week. So either I'm a fool and an idiot or this cause is even more important than I think. Mm-hmm. And we usually go for the latter. So you, you see this with um, a lot of um, gurus. And so those, uh, people like the cults, I, I would say, are using it for brainwashing purposes, if there's such a thing. Yeah, as ma- they're, they're really hurting manipulation. People. Yeah. Then you have sort of a middle tier where I don't think that the people are using it to be evil. I don't even know if they consciously understand what they're doing but it helps them more than the people they're giving advice to. So um, you'll have a certain guru, and we all know these, these gurus who, you know, who, who basically say, let's use Amway for, for, for an example. Mm-hmm. Amway is an extremely large and powerful company. So, so big that they have a sports arena named after them. And a but super I don't know. That they fund. Huh? And a super pack that the, the bosses fund. All of that. However, other than in Michigan, where they're like a huge amount of the economy, I don't know many people who use their products. I don't know many people who can name their products. So their product is their salespeople. It's the, the, the salespeople are the inventory because the salespeople buy the product and sometimes sell it and sometimes don't. But what they need to do is get the salespeople constantly working on their behalf. So they're constantly telling these people, you're going to be liberated through hard work. And they do it through the American dream. It's, you know, they're very capitalist. So it's it's this idea of you're going to have it. They talk about timeshares a lot. You'll have a timeshare and you'll have an RV and you'll have a mansion and this. But whether or not they get that and a small percentage of them do, if you talk to an Amway person, they're so bonded to Amway. They they talk about it like it's it's their their family, they're this. So, so, you know, that hard work on their behalf, you know, other gurus do it. I mean, you'll see hu- people who talk about hustle, right? Hustle, 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 hard work, hustle. Yeah, maybe, you know, but at the same time, if you talk to people who, who think about the gurus who tell them to hustle, they're usually not that rich, but they love these gurus. They follow every word. So, so that's another thing. But then I think there's a really benevolent way to use this. And I think the benevolent way to use this, I'll use strategic coach as an example. So strategic coach is an organization that I actually joined. And I don't join a lot of business coaching organizations. I think that um, many are good, but a lot of them don't really appeal to me. I joined this because one of the most successful people I know recommended it to me. And it's run by a guy named Dan Sullivan. And you go in there and they give you it's basically a couple full day classes a year and they charge good money for it. And you go in there and they give you really useful instruction and really useful tools. They give you these tools that you fill in, but they help you fill it in on how to structure your time, how to do selling, how to do all of these things it takes to scale and build a business. But they don't do it for you. They coach you through it. And then after each one, they give you a set of sort of guidelines and instructions and there's support on the back end. But they basically say, for you to really do this, you got to go out and do it yourself. And you do. And because I was spending money that I didn't really have, it was early on for me, but I just did it. 
I really did all the homework and I got a ton out of it. It really transformed my business. So it's a really useful program and it, more useful than if I had hired someone because now it's part of who I am. The vast majority of people, though, did a very small percentage of their homework, you know, and they come but, to the thing. Huh? The actual completion rate on average is somewhere between one and three percent. And three percent is the gold standard of the homework. You mean uh, just for to complete online programs? Well, this was uh, in person and they uh, all completed. So this is what was interesting. They would always come back the next week, the next three months. And they would say to the coach. Because they would always get something out of it because the program's great, you know, but they wouldn't do enough. Uh, and they would say, oh, you know, I was doing it for the first month, but then I got busy and did it. And I'm so sorry, Miss Blank. Mm -hmm. I'll do better next time. And, and the coach would say it's progress, not perfection. So I, I remember I was running my agency at the time and I would think to myself, so I work like a dog and my team does doing everything. And my reward is usually that clients say to me, hey, I love the results you got, but I have an assignment for you that are completely out of scope, but they get so used to the work you've been doing for them. They start throwing more on, they push your scope, they, they get used to what you did, they don't appreciate it. Human nature, right? We, 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 we get used to what, what, you know, that what used to be gold now becomes the new mud, right? Whereas I'm going to these things, the people aren't doing the work and they're apologizing to their coach that they're paying, that they didn't do it and they're signing up for another year. And I said, you know what's going on here? These people are being given all the tools they need. And if you do the program, you're actually bettering yourself. I will be better for having done that for years to come. And if I had just hired someone, I wouldn't have learned it. But the fact that I had to do the work is the reason that I'm singing their praises so much right now. And the people who only did part of the work just wanted to push themselves harder. So, you know, if you have a program where you have a lot of good to offer, but you feel underappreciated, don't blame your clients. That's the structure you've set up. We're too, we get too inured, too accommodated to good work and it becomes normal. Think about parts of it that you can structure so that they are responsible for doing part of the stuff and you give the guidance and that it's not structured as, hey, I'm doing this to make my life easier. Structure it in a way that by them doing the work, it actually improves them the dedication that they'll have for you will be far more firm and also they'll get better results. I agree completely. I mean, certainly in terms of adult learning, unless they're deeply involved in the design of the solution, then chances right. are it's just going to be another this too will pass moment 100%. and they'll move on. And what you're trying to do is create lasting, sustainable change in behavior and results uh, without the negative unintended consequences. Well, and the uh, side effect, though, yeah. is that they're going to appreciate, they're going to bond to you. They're going to, they're going to spread the word about you. I just advertised strategic coach. Yeah. I'm not advertising the people who did the work for me. No, I get it. Interesting. Okay. It sounds to me like you've had a few successes this year with your clients. I'm really curious, applying some of the, uh, the strategies, what kind of impact have they had and how has it affected results? For someone who's become synonymous with hype, 
I'm always reluctant to directly brag because I feel like people will hear me bragging directly and say, ah, come on, he's just selling, you know. Yeah, but it's not me. No, right, right. So, so with that disclaimer, I want to say that um, I think I've never been so happy with the results my clients have gotten and our clients have gotten before this year, in the last year. So, I mean, it, 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 it's really nice when you have a hypothesis and you change your business to fit that and it really works. So we created this new structure. So we have a woman, uh, there's a company called Wanadu. They're, they're sort of this um, technology platform uh, in the HR space, good platform. But the person I work with mostly is this woman, Callie Adamson Bakken. Based on what we came up together, we created an idea called YourSurveySucks.com. So long story short, the technology basically allows for back and forth client, back and forth company employee interaction that's that's far superior to just doing a quarterly survey. And it's this idea that instead of giving your kid the birds and the bees talk once and being really uncomfortable, open a constant dialogue with them, right? right. So instead of just going out and saying that this was a great technology, based on ideas we came up with together based on the hype strategy, you know, principles, she came up with a site, and then came up with a TikTok channel that basically told employees who had given feedback in corporate surveys, but didn't really, but nothing came out of it, or they didn't really give feel free to give real feedback to report what they're struggling with at their companies. So the groundswell was incredible. I mean, each the TikTok videos were getting hundreds of thousands of views up from like 100 views yeah. of TikTok, you know, a, a flood of emails, a flood of handwritten notes, people sending in these complaints. So now Callie could go back to these companies and say, look, you know, your employees are telling us stuff that they would never tell you. And we understand it's really hard with the technology you have and the structures you have to get people to open up. Give us a try. Look what we uncovered. And it's been great. She's become a viral. If you can become viral in the niche, in the HR niche, yeah, he has. And I use her story everywhere because uh, hype strategies, we went through the process. We used the hype strategies to structure it. We used our games, our tools. I help come up with the ideas personally, but she took it to the next level, which is just as it should be. And she's building it, running it, adding to it, turning it into business. And what's cool is she's now sort of a, a, a real pro. I mean, she comes up with the ideas. I mean, we worked with a, a company, work with a company called Pop-Up Funded Startup. Uh, they're in the uh, e-commerce space, this, this kind of... Um, modular e-commerce tools. So not just, whereas Shopify is great. You just put up a store. This, it, it, it has all of it. You, 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 your funnels, you know, are in there. You can put your marketing stuff in there. You can put your sales stuff in there, all of it. We came up with a strategy based on secret society um, and the secret society kinds of, they created a conference around it, which blew up. They raised all this money for Ukraine. It ties directly back to attention to their company. Um, and that was just one of many things we did together. So it's, I've never, um, you know, we always had successes, but it was more tactical successes. It was like, okay, we're, we're growing a following, driving leads, getting content out there, turning it into some money for clients. This is like transformative stuff. And, and, and it's so much fun. How are you using it or planning to use it to drive expansion sales? 
because at the moment, most VCs are shifting their model away from revenue at any cost to you have to make a profit. And if you're not collecting cash, you're toast. So I hope I'm understanding the question properly. So if I'm not, back me up. But the way that I start any engagement, and the reason I'm saying I is because we have a couple of lines of business. But the one line of business that eventually I will scale this thing I'm discussing with you now, I only take on between four to six clients at a time on purpose, which I never thought I would say. But I want to be personally involved and I want to handpick the clients, right? So so that's what this is. So I always start these engagements by beginning with where they want to go. I mean, I always use this question that I got from strategic coach, where I say, you know, if you and I were sitting here tomorrow, sitting here in a year, and then I do it for three years and clinking champagne glasses, because you've just had the best year ever. What does that year look like? And I do that before we start working together, because if I don't feel that the thing that we do can get them there, I won't take them on, not out of any sense of whatever graciousness or anything like that, but because what we do is hyper-specific. There are a lot of really great marketing agencies. So if someone says to me, I really need to generate, build a funnel that within 30 days from start to finish sells X number of online courses for $450 through Facebook advertising, because my friend told me that Facebook advertising is the way is the best system. I'm not saying I disagree or agree. I wouldn't do that because that's a tactical approach, which is great, you know, but my belief is that if you're trying to get to an angle, if you say profitability at a certain period of time, I would dig into what that means. And then I would say to myself, what experiments can we run to get there? Because while these hype strategies work, the one thing I'll admit that few marketers do is that marketers don't know what they're doing, including me, meaning you can understand mass psychology, you can understand, have a knack for it. But unless you're willing to, within a structure, do very quick experiments and then measure how quick you're getting to your goal and then eliminate the stuff that's not working, it doesn't work. So you have to have a little bit of patience. But if I don't think what we do can hit the goal, I, we, we just ramp it down. Did I did I read the question properly? I mean, I just don't take it on. But did I, I, I may not have read the question properly. I'm particularly interested in examples of victories and lessons that you've been able to apply over the, the last 12 months because... Um, as we go into uh, the recession and the market starts to tighten, you're going to have to stand apart. And I'm really looking for people to be inspired to see, well, actually, now is the time to take risks. Now is the time to break, uh, rip up the old rule book. Because using the stuff that everyone else does means that you're screaming into already deafened ears. Well, yeah, I mean, in both of the cases that I mentioned, we're not doing it for the fun of it. I mean, I always tell people money is the most important metric. You see a lot of marketers, often kids, but even middle-aged professionals, giving you all this stuff about engagement and uh, brand awareness and this and that. And that's all well and good. But ultimately, if that doesn't turn into 
in most cases, money, because most of these are businesses, whether that's revenue, profits, or an increased valuation for your company so that you can get more investment, whatever that metric is, it's usually money-oriented, unless it's a nonprofit. And even then, it, it is. So to use these examples, I mean, with Pop-Up, one of the three co-founders of the company is um, Italian. You know, he's from, I think, Bologna, but he kind of a citizen of the world, lives in Ireland, but his wife is Ukrainian and he lived in Ukraine. You know, their whole thing is very tied to living your dreams and not following a set path to success and using e-commerce to do that. So we created this conference based on bringing in the kind of speakers who would teach you the unconventional paths to success, you know, put on by pop-up and we use the fact that it was raising money for Ukraine, which they care a lot about to get people to take part. But ultimately, we didn't do it for the fun of it. The, the conference attracted a lot of attention. The pop-up people got to talk about a non-linear path to success, which their software happens to allow for better than most softwares out there. It put their ideas in the heads of very, very prominent, powerful people who were speakers, who they can, who they're now doing joint ventures with and things like that, who are spreading the ideas far and wide. It opened up the opportunity for a larger conference series, each one of which will, um, uh, you know, get a bigger audience, get bigger viewership. You know, they're doing a video component that that's larger than the small elite component. So all of this. And, you know, it's an intellectual property that when they go to raise their next fund or if they ever go public, their next round or ever go public will increase the value of their company. So all of this was very consciously designed to get them to their financial goals. And that's just one of many. We never do anything without that in mind. So this is really interesting. So in that early stage conversation, where you're helping them work out what the better future three years hence looks like. And you're then presumably mapping a pathway backwards from there to where you are today. What sort of thinking, designs, processes go into that, that build, uh, help you to build your hype models? There's a lot here. I mean, it's very structured. It's an entire game plan with a map, right? But I'll give you one example that I that I think could could illustrate this well. So we try to take things that a lot of hype artists do by feel, because the thing maybe that's different about hype artists and traditional marketers is that they go by gut, right? You talk to you see someone like uh, Shep Gordon, who was Alice Cooper's manager. He was a pot dealer who fell into the right place at the right time and just had this weird knack for attracting attention. There's no science. He just like, similarly, they just feel it, they do it. So what we're always trying to do is take that stuff and get to the bottom of it and slice it and dice it and build tools and systems around it. So one of those is how do you know if a hype strategy is working, right? Because there's a lot, there's a lot of empty ground between, hey, we're not getting traction and we just, you know, right. made an extra 10 million of profit, right? There, there's a lot of space between that. So how do you know? How do you know if you're getting closer rather than I can just sense it? Well, we have a scoring system. So when we create a gambit, which is we take a hype strategy. We have processes and games, as we call them, that allow us to come up with the right idea 
Then we figure out what's the smallest executable step that you can go into the world with and see if it works so you can see whether to go bigger. We have a scoring system. And it's a little bit different than other scoring systems. You know, a lot of times you'll see things like engagement. Oh, do we have a lot of conversations going on on hashtags or whatever they use? Or, or do you have a lot of followers or, you know, open rates? Ours is called the WINS framework. So what, what it is, is willingness, intensity, next step, and sustainability. And it's in the order it's in, not in order of importance, but because it spells WINS. <laughs> Willingness basically means, and this seems at first glance very um, surface level, but it's very important, is the person doing it willing to do it? Because I've had things where everything else was working, but it always fell to the bottom of the priority list of the people doing it. And when you really dig in, it's because it didn't fit their culture. It didn't fit their vibe. They couldn't get into it. And we cut those. Intensity is really important because you'll hear someone say, oh, you know, we, we spread the message on LinkedIn and we got lots of likes. And then I look at the likes they got and it's, hey, great, thanks, wonderful, nice. And I say, you know, a lot of times, you know, certain women in my life will, will post pictures and every one of their friends will say, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're a goddess. Well, are they really a goddess? Are they really, you know, the, you know probably not, right? That doesn't mean they're a goddess. So when people say, thank you, you're great, a lot of times it's just because they're being nice. But if you get giant paragraphs, if you get people debating you, if you get people saying, I need to talk to you right now, if you get more views than you've ever gotten in your life by a factor of 30, that's intensity. And that's not only for social media, that's for anything you do. And that's more important than followers, hashtag, whatever. I'm saying hashtag as a joke, it's but whatever. The, yeah. It's the meaningful engagement where you're provoking them to think, you're shifting their thinking, you're shifting their beliefs, you're challenging, you're creating doubt, whatever it happens to be. Correct. Uh, you're helping them move from where they were towards that better future and you're generating smoke you know in other words you can just that there's this sense of wow we're getting things going like i remember the reason i knew to do the hype thing is i was writing for ink and people liked my stuff thousand views 1500 views i did an article on um or it might have been forbes actually on simon sinek like kind of like tearing him apart for being a hype artist and saying here's how you repurpose 150,000 views comments through the roof negative ones. I love Simon Sinek. You know, you're a lazy bum. Da, da, da. So the next piece in the scoring formula is N for next step. And what that means is, is this victory you're having, if it is a victory, tying to what you're actually trying to get to, which is, is what you talked about. So let's say you know where you want to go in a year, we then break that into three month segments. So where do we need to be to get there in three months? Because That's easier to handle. So is this thing you're doing, you get all this intensity, you love doing it, but it doesn't get you when I ask you how, hey, we got all this intensity, da, da, da. And, and, and you say, well, is it getting you closer to that goal, which is usually financial? And you say, I, I, no, and you can't explain how? You got to change the experiment. You got you to tweak it to get there. And then the last one is sustainable, which is, hey, you might love doing this. You might be into it. But if it's completely dependent on one person working seven hours a, a day, 
then you have to tweak it. And it doesn't mean that if you're not hitting one of these things, it's a failure. We score each of these with on four being the highest and one being the lowest. And then we keep tweaking the gambit, the experiment until it's all fours. And if it's all fours, then you know you're hitting your goals. Then you know you're getting to that financial or whatever it is benchmark because it's built into the metric. So that's one of many systems that we use, for example. Interesting. Okay. So if we look back over the last 12 months, what was your best mistake and what did you learn from it? That's a good one. I, I, I think I know what it is. Um, the pandemic hit me really hard. I was really doing well with the agency model, although I did have a lot of overhead. And right before the pandemic, probably like three months before, I remember saying to one of my employees who I was particularly, who I worked with a lot, who I had a good relationship with and still do. I said, you know, we're doing really well, but I'm nervous because I don't think we're recession proof because all of this is dependent on people having good marketing budgets and on us doing the work. And it was like I foretold the future. I didn't have enough time to make the change, you know, and, and this happened. And I, I'm telling you, like all like every client froze their marketing budget. I was going to say all but one, but even that client did for a month. And I thought I was going out of business. I mean, I had payroll you know, obviously laid people off and didn't want to do it, but had to. It was brutal. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to survive it because my model was based that way. So fortunately, the book came out right around that same time. And if it hadn't, even though some clients did restart, I had so much overhead that um, it would have been hard to come back from. But the book got attention. And so I started really effectively driving people back to the company again. And, and people got really interested in that, even in the midst of the bad economy. But what I did was I just put them right back into the old model. And I was like, you know, this is what I know how to do. I'm going to try to do this with fewer employees because having all that overhead is really painful. And I don't really have a belief that having more employees means more success. I believe more profit means more success. Mm -hmm. I would do that. And what happened was, it was like being on the treadmill, like Dante's Inferno, where you're doing the exact same thing. It's like you just had this experience. So it's I brought on, yeah. So I brought on these like six clients right off the bat, but now I had fewer employees and it was the same push and pull treadmill, couldn't work on the business, et cetera. And then I, I had this revelation that I needed to reinvent the business. So I started bringing on new clients and I was scared to do it. I would say to them, look, we're not going to do the work for you. And I would think that they would say, well, can I get a discount or whatever? And they said, amazing. You know, that's what I'm looking for. So I slowly but surely got rid of all the clients that were under the old model. You know, we did it, I think, parted on very on terms that that everyone was relatively happy with. And um, it was the mistake, though, you know, that, that led to the new model, because to me, when the book came out, the book was all about, oh, I need to get more business for my business, in addition to writing a good book, which I do care a lot about. Never in a million years did I think, well, there's a new business model, right, that's directly tied to the book. It's like, how do I get more business for my business? And when I just did that in this survival mode and saw that it was constantly going to be Sisyphus. And it had been Sisyphus before. Every time I would get three new clients, I would have to hire one new employee. So even though I made a living, it was like, it was that idea of like constantly being worried about payroll, constantly stressed out. 
And so that was a big mistake. And, and I was, and, and, but it, but it was a right mistake. It really helped me reinvent the business. How, how much of an impact has the constant friction, those intersectional moments with uh, people from very uh, different backgrounds with different perspectives had in terms of forming your thinking? Because it, it looks like you lean into problems. Uh, you have a natural curiosity. And the question that seems to go through your mind is there must be a better way. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, thank you. Um, I love to think of myself that way. I mean, I think I definitely have a natural curiosity. That's one of my best traits. The other part, though, it's, you know, it's easier to tell the story without the warts, you know, in retrospect. I mean, I'm leaving out a lot of the hand wringing. I mean, when all of my clients froze, I was terrified. And I, I put my resume together for the first time in years. I was started thinking, am I going to have to declare bankruptcy? Because I always had a running line of credit because of the payroll, because of all the payroll. I was really upset, really stressed out. I was thinking about getting a job, you know, but I didn't want to. I still believed in what I did. So I didn't just say, oh, I'm going to do this till the day I die and bankrupt every room, you know, sell my house and all this. I mean, I'm not going to do that. What I did say, I talked to uh, my financial wizard, you know, within the company and we sat down and we made a decision after she said, I mean, she helped me. Her name's Amy LaLiberté and, and, and it was really her. I mean, she said, Mike, I know you can market and I know you can sell, Right. And you're going to go out there and you're going to get 10 new clients and you already got six or whatever it was. I forget where we were at at the time. She goes, but what are you doing? This is the exact same problem that got you into the mess. She's like, you know, she's like, you were stuck with all of these, this, this, the, the, you needed to build all this back end, all of this stuff. And it was a nightmare when they all dropped at once. She, she's like, I'm challenging you to get four clients of a more sustainable model with very low overhead. And if you can't do it, she said, I would challenge you to consider using your experience and getting a marketing executive job. And that was really hard for me to hear because I don't want to think of myself. You know, I like working for myself. I had done well with the business. I'd made a nice living. Um, I had a lot of freedom and I'm building something. And, and I could have easily said to her, well, I'm an entrepreneur. You don't know what you're talking about. But, you know, I said, how long does it go on? I need to put benchmarks in place. You know, if I can't do that thing, then it doesn't work. So I gave myself a certain period of time. And it was funny. I got the final deal like um, like three weeks or something before. I think it was at the end of the year. And because, of, you know, Christmas, people close out their budget. So it was like right before. And, it, you know, but I, I, I'm not one of the I, I really was ready to throw in the towel. I can't give myself the credit that you're giving me, you know. Well, uh, again, I appreciate your candor. Uh, there is a lesson here, which is the task expands to the time allotted to it. So uh, I, I find I have to create many short deadlines. Otherwise, I tend to play brinkmanship. And I'm very good at making it through, but by the skin of my teeth. And uh, the danger with that is if you're good in a crisis, you tend to create crises to be good in. I think that's true. And I also think, and this is easy to say now that 
I at least temporarily got to a good place again. And I say temporarily because it's always a nightmare. You never arrive, you know, I think that it's okay to quit. And what I mean by that is I see a lot of people who will hang on to that sinking ship until they've ruined everything because they're, because they're hustlers and they're not quitters and they're entrepreneurs and they're, and I think if you're not hitting your deadline, if you're not hitting, if you're not getting to the goal by the time you need to get to the goal, a retreat sometimes needs to happen. You can always start a new war later. Yes. I mean, there's a sunk cost fallacy. We've so much time, effort, money, blood, sweat, tears into this. We may as well see it through to the end. Well, that's the gambler's fallacy as well. At some point, we have to win. No, you don't. The probability is the same on every hand uh, or every spin. And no matter how much you want it to be the case, your lucky numbers are not coming up just because you will them. If it does, it's a coincidence. And that's not the best way to run your business. So, but it's challenging. It's not a formula, right? Because some of it comes down to like gut, right? Like, like Jeff Bezos, he doesn't talk about this a lot, but at a certain point, Amazon almost folded. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame him for this at all, but he, he, he borrowed money. I mean, I guess a small amount of money, but not really $50,000 or something to keep the business afloat small for him now from his his parents, you know, and they were able to do that for him, which is is fine. But I think it's kind of like, okay, let's say you have that opportunity. Let's say you know someone who will get you out of a pinch. Do you ask people five times? In other words, like there are people that you know, who sometimes they're like, look, do me this favor once, even if you can, a lot of people can't do that. But whatever it is, telling people to work for free for a period of time, whatever. But you'll often see people with this entrepreneurial mindset, because they don't know when to walk away, they'll burn every relationship. They'll ask 17 people for money. They'll ask their team to work for free over and over. And I think that's the part that's hard to navigate. And it just takes a little bit of social intelligence. Like when is it okay to push and even ask for help? And when should you really just ramp it down? You know, I think part of the problem is that uh, and in particular men, but it's not exclusively because a lot of women in corporate are afraid to ask for help too, uh, because they don't want to be seen as weak. As weak and sure. it's anything but being vulnerable is an act of courage. The fact that you went to your finance, uh, financial genius and asked for warts and all feedback and you took it shows a, a huge amount of self-awareness, but it Thank also you. shows a willingness to take criticism for what it is, which is feedback, instead of being brittle and cracking at this or uh, punishing the messenger. I think I feel the emotions. Like for some people, they really see feedback inherently as a positive. Like there are people who will get feedback and they'll say to themselves, awesome, I just found out how to make the product better. I'm not that guy. I hear the feedback and I feel bad. I mean, I would have liked for her to say something different. I, 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 you know, I, I, I take it emotionally. I think if maybe a trait that I have that, that, that is adaptive to me is that I can feel that pain, even to the point where there's a lot of hand wringing and, and, you know, um, all of it and do what I need to do anyway, you know, and like sort of just see it for what it is, even if it really hurts. Well, I, I think, um, in my experience, uh, it's, it's rare 
that my lessons have come from my victories. They right. normally come from a good beating. Right, right. Um, and uh, it's the scar tissue that makes you stronger. But you're right. Some people kill the messenger. Like I know people who they might even get customer feedback. They, they get customer feedback. They get vendor feedback. They get employee feedback. Partner and, feedback. And, yeah. And they, and they don't say this really hurts and I don't want to believe it, but I have to. They say those people don't know what they're talking about. Love the idiots. <laughs> That's the part that I, I, I think is a really dangerous, you know, it's place lethal. to be. Yeah. It's lethal. Interesting. Okay. Well, Mike, we've come to time. Tell me something. Are there any articles in particular that you've written recently or case studies that you can refer people to where they can see uh, hype in action? It's funny that you ask because um, I used to write articles every week, sometimes more than one. And if you look up Michael Shine, you don't have to put the F in there because back then I didn't have the F. <laughs> you'll see all kinds of articles talking about this stuff. I also have, um, I write to my email list, this thing, hypereads.com, where I, I send book recommendations of, you know, the, kind of all this crazy research I do. I, I recommend the best ones. In terms of articles, though, I've taken a break and I'm I'm just getting back into it. You know, I, I um, had, had gotten involved in some other things, especially with building the business back up. And I ramped down, you know, I was working, I've done stuff for Forbes, Fortune, Lately, Psychology Today, and I stopped really doing it. I'm right now working on an article that um, I'm pitching to Fast Company. And when I say pitching, I have, you know, I'm talking to the editor. They have to accept it and like it, but she's waiting for it. And it's about how perhaps people should be looking at hype instead of brand to solve their problems. You know, a lot of times people look at improving their branding Mm -hmm. to solve the problem of not having enough attention and not hitting their goals in that capacity. Whereas maybe what they should be looking at is how to hype themselves up. So that's what I'm working on now. This is the cat among the pigeons strategy then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, but it's something I also really believe. I mean, I, I, I often do. see companies, especially in the tech startup, where they actually say we need to hype things up. And then they hire a branding agency and they end up with a really awesome color scheme. There's a time and a place to hire a branding agency. They're really good at what they do. But if the idea is to attract a lot of attention and build a lot of emotion and drive your valuation up by hyping things up benevolently, branding agency is, is not the way to go. But that's what you see people doing because they don't know where what else to do. Excellent. So Mike, how can people get hold of you? There's a couple things. The best way to learn about me and my ideas, go to Amazon or wherever you get for books and, and type in the Hype Handbook. Um, so that's the first thing. And my company, which has um, all of our contact information, is microfamemedia.com. So that's F-A-M-E, like famous. So microfamemedia.com and all, all of the contact stuff's on there. And you can email me. The email comes to me directly, and I'd be happy to talk to anyone about just about anything. Michael F. Shine, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, please tag someone who would benefit, probably a chief marketing officer or a marketing executive who's hard pressed and under pressure because their budgets are being slashed. They're under pressure to do more with less. Give Mike a call. If you're looking to grow your sales and you want to do so with a sound psychological and sustainable base, then drop me a line. I'm taking on two coaching clients 
in the next quarter. So if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at last-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.